you can't sit around pretending like this disease isn't going to disproportionately harm and kill these, uh, you know, these vulnerable populations. Um, and it's, it's, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Welcome to Decolonize Everything. My name is Rebecca Mendoza Nunciado, your host and conversation partner. It's been a minute since you've heard from me. I moved from Denver, Colorado to Cambridge, Massachusetts. I am now in week six of my master's program at Harvard Divinity School. So I'm under a blanket recording into my computer. So forgive the sounds in the background, everything from my hedgehog, who's pretty quiet, my dog, who barks a lot, and my cat, who always finds a way to jump onto the computer keyboard. In today's episode of Decolonize Everything, I have a discussion with a classmate of mine, Alejandra Salimi. Ali and I got on the phone a few months ago. It's 2020, so it feels like years ago. COVID is still here, and the death count continues to rise here in the U.S. I want to just take a moment of silence to ground ourselves for this conversation, the severity of the reality that we're living in. We know that people continue to die, not only due to this virus, but due to the administration and our so-called leaders. But there's also a decolonized view of death that allows us, especially right now, in the fall time, to honor those who have passed. Whether you celebrate All Saints Day or Dia de los Muertos, this is a moment to hold those who have been lost, those who have been brutally killed, those who have died as a product of neglect, bad governance, those who have died at the hand of colonial forces then and now. If you feel comfortable, and safe to close your eyes and bring those who are suffering to mind. Whether it's a loved one or the person you read about in an article who's on a ventilator or perhaps who work in the fields harvesting our food, an ancestor, an elderly neighbor, those who are behind bars and treated as less than human, the people delivering groceries, the people cleaning every object possible in the late hours and early mornings. I'm gonna leave a second of silence here before we jump into this conversation. Thanks for joining me in that as a part of the sacred community. I'm excited now to jump into the conversation with Alejandro. My name is Alejandra Salemi. I uh, am an incoming student at Harvard Divinity School, um, where I'll be pursuing a Master's of Divinity. I graduated with my Master's of Public Health from the University of Florida. Um, and, and when I started my MPH two years ago, 
it was kind of interesting because nobody really understood what public health was. Everybody thought that I was like on track to go to med school or wanting to be a nurse or something like that. I often had to like explain to people like, no, public health is like water sanitation and like community well-being, right? Yeah. Keeping spaces safe, vaccinations, like, um, you know, all these different entities. And now we went from nobody knew what public health was to suddenly everybody and their mother's an expert. So I feel like with my MPH now, I have this, um, I have the foundation, I have the credibility, I have the understanding, I have the tools to start understanding this world. Um, I personally think that religious institutions are some of the most untapped resources for public health, uh, information, education, and dissemination. Um, we often think that religion and science have to be these kind of opposing forces, but in reality, we need the buy-in of stakeholders in the form of religious leaders to effectively prove communities um, with public health efforts. And divinity school, I think, will kind of be the other side of that bridge, right, of understanding theology and ideology and, and these beautiful religions that have, you know, again, it has those cultural um understandings that might hinder or might progress a public health initiative Mm. trying to be placed in those communities. It'll give me hopefully credibility with religious leaders when I, you know, waltz in there and try to give them information about, you know, safe sex education or, you know, uh, drug rehabilitation or mental health awareness, like all these things that oftentimes have heavy religious implications. I'll be able to talk, you know, talk to them, understanding a little bit of where they're coming from with their theologies and ideologies and also bring my public health uh, understanding into those spaces. And I think there's a lot of like toxic volunteerism and toxic uh, religious beliefs, I guess, um, kind of white savior complex that um, encourages Westerners, specifically Americans, to feel like they can go fix other countries but are unable to do so in their own soil. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of be in those spaces and have those kind of talk, tough conversations so that we can um, – kind of start dismantling volunteerism because that is that is colonization in the modern day era like you do not need to take an Instagram picture with a bunch of black or brown babies like you do not need to go to Mexico to teach VBS like that is that ain't it (laughs) I don't know I'm not trying to speak for God or whatever God you believe in but I just I can almost confidently say that ain't it (laughs) Uh uh-huh I am so with you on that that will be a whole nother episode maybe it will weave through all the episodes because the white saviorism it is it's the colonial energy I virtually graduated on May 1st, and on May 3rd, I was working as a contact tracer in Florida. So I worked um, somewhere around 70 days, I think, this summer. It was pretty much the entire summer working as a contact tracer for the pandemic. Florida has quickly become the kind of epicenter for both the U.S. and almost the world at this point. What was like a day in the life like with contact tracing? The way that they're doing contact tracing here... um, the Department of Health was able to hire hundreds upon hundreds of people pretty much overnight. And the way they did that is they, they hired us through like an emergency contract. So we're uh, essentially deployed, uh, right? So it's, it's called a deployment. Uh, and uh, we, you know, start our, our two-week deployment. And uh, we typically don't get any days off. So we work the whole 14 days, uh, anywhere from 10 to 12 hours. So like on average, I would usually do like a 10 or 11-hour day. Um, and so it would just, you know, we would get our cases, um, and call people up and, you know, tell them the results that they hadn't already, which is always an interesting thing to tell people that they're positive for COVID. 
um, and then uh, ask them, like, who they've been around. How do they get sick? Um, you know, do they attend any schools or nursing homes? Uh, you know, how, you know, do, do, can we have their contact so we can follow up with people they were, they were around and tell them to get tested? Giving them information of when they could, when they had to be in isolation and when they could potentially get out of isolation. So it was a lot of health educating, um, a lot of kind of putting out fires because people would sometimes freak out. Yeah, is there like one story or one person that sticks with you when you made that call? I don't know. I, it's really interesting to see the themes that emerge. I don't know if it's like one particular story, but just kind of the, you, you can almost tell right away the type of call that you're going to have just from the first couple of interactions. Um, and it, it usually, unfortunately, went one of two ways according to, like, race, I would kind of no- notice it, um, where a lot of times, um, like, non, non-POC non or white people um, would kind of be very, like, relaxed about it um, mm. for the most part. Like, they, you know, they would tell me, like, oh, probably got sick from going out to a bar, probably got oh, sick gosh. from, um, you know, like, traveling or something like that. Yeah. And they would be just... And oftentimes they would also have mild cases, and so it really wasn't a big deal. Wow. Like they weren't feeling like they were going to die. They would complain to me that, you know, this is all thrown out of proportion, and you're hurting my small business, and I feel fine. Like I would go to work with, you know, worse colds than this, um, which is kind of a slap in the face because then you would hang up and call someone else, and they'd be someone sobbing about their family member in the ICU, like on a ventilator and they themselves can hardly talk because they're so out of breath. And so it's just just like, and that's just, it it messes with you. Like that's really like weird. You know what I mean? Like it's just really bizarre to hear how drastic um, people's experiences are of the same pandemic. This is a little extreme, so you can be like, that's crazy, or we can roll with it. So, you know, I'm thinking about um, the way that you described kind of that interaction with folks with some privilege, folks that are, you know, getting sick because they're enjoying their lives, perhaps different than um, black and indigenous people of color who are on the front lines working or in the service industry and really have no choice about these things. What's coming to mind for the first time actually in this pandemic is this idea of the contact of Europeans bringing disease to indigenous people of the Americas. The folks that came to colonize the Americas and you know settle here had something in their system that allowed them not to die and get sick at the same rate as the indigenous people um and so i'm just thinking about that interesting parallel um of this kind of attitude of like oh like i can keep living my life um compared to like this is destroying us yeah that's actually interesting i guess i hadn't really thought about that um and i I saw it almost the opposite of i often saw um like Uh, In in Florida specifically, we have a lot of migrant workers. Oftentimes, they're undocumented. Most of the time, they are Latinx to some extent. Um, I I, I do think there might be some Black uh, migrant workers as well, but it's like like disproportionately a a large number of Latinx, oftentimes undocumented. Most of the produce and the fresh food that we have in Florida comes from these migrant workers. and so when I was, I, I worked in two locations. My, the large portion of my summer was worked in Lee County, which 
you know, we could get into a whole conversation about the fact that I was working in a county named after Robert E. Lee during the, the, the murder of uh, Ahmaud Avery. We had our governor go on like a news, like a press release or something like that, talking about one of the reasons that Florida's cases were spiking so fast was because migrant workers were testing positive so quickly. And so that the cases that we were seeing weren't really of such high concern because it's just the migrant oh. workers all in their little area, all in their oh. little camp. Like they're not going to, you know, it's not really representative of like the general population of Florida. It makes me so sick to hear that because everything about the pandemic has been for, gosh, like for, you know, the elites of our country, it's been about how can we take this in an opportunistic way to close the border, to keep international students out, to, you know, limit. I mean, it reminds me of in Greeley here in Colorado, we had the meatpacking plant and they weren't allowed to close. And it's, it's already horrific work conditions, right? Same with farm workers. Like, it's already horrific and unjust. And then you add the pandemic and the lack of respect, the inability to see the humanity. Like, oh, it makes me mm-hmm. sick. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It was definitely, I mean, that was some of the hardest, I think, conversations. Because uh, Abram Kendi, who, you know, wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist and Stamp and all these incredible books, he posted um, on his social media a statistic that really blew me away. But uh, in the U.S., Latinx people are testing over two times higher, two times as frequent positive for COVID than um, their non-Latinx or, or their white counterparts. And so it just really just showcases that you know this population, again, often undoc- undocumented, and so under that under that label, it comes you know, poor health, uh, poor health access, no insurance, uh, a language barrier, fear of the police, like all the, you know, this, this label of undocumented carries so much burden already, like their health is already at a disadvantage. And then you're going to throw this deadly, highly contagious disease at them when they're living in close quarters. A lot of them, you know, they share homes with, you know, you know, multiple people that they don't even know. Their children often have to be, you know, all the kids have to be together and taken care of by a couple of people so parents can go to the field and work. And so it just, it literally is like a modern day, like genocide of like, you you can't sit around pretending like this disease isn't going to disproportionately harm and kill these, uh, you know, these vulnerable populations. Um, and it's, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Can you say a little bit more about kind of the poor health index or basically how the system has already set up um, this community in a way that's that's really disadvantaged? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't I don't think it's going to be shocking or breaking news to anybody to hear that, you know, black and brown folks have some of the highest health disparities in the U.S. Um, And I could list five bajillion different examples uh, for both black Uh, and brown people individually and and different illnesses that just affect them disproportionately. One of the things, though, that I think often gets um, kind of overlooked is uh, the lack of, like, cultural representation in, uh, like, medical providers. Mm. So you have people who uh, are needing to go um, seek medical care to some extent, but, you know, doctors don't have any type of cultural competency to have a conversation or to understand, like, 
you know, cultural things that are just unavailable mm-hmm. for people that, you know, white Americans see no problem with. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, you also have issues of um, lack of representation in health research. So we're all hoping on a vaccine for COVID to kind of cure and, and help us move forward from, from this pandemic. Historically, any vaccine or medication that comes out is usually only tested on white males, maybe white males and females. We, we lack to recognize the transgender siblings that we have as well. But you know, mm-hmm. but when you when you lack, um, you know, diversity in your clinical trials, you don't know how those reactions are going to affect black and brown people. And so, let's say that you actually find a physician that can, you know, that is culturally competent, that you feel comfortable with, that mm-hmm. maybe speaks the language that. You need, you know, that you that you can only speak. So, you know, how many physicians can speak Haitian Creole? How many can actually speak yeah. Spanish? Ugh. Or, you know, all these other languages that are are present in our, in our melting pot. You know, you find your physician, and then they give you a prescription, but that prescription has been under tested on people who are, you know, black and brown. Uh, and so, they you might have different health uh, side effects. You might, you know, it might not work as efficiently. There, you know, something might go off, and so. Again, you're just at another disadvantage of the medication that everybody else gets doesn't work on you as well because it hasn't been tested on those populations. This is the big question, but like, what's a radical vision for like how this could be different? If we've rebuilt the thing from the bottom up from your perspective and your place in the world, what would that look like? I think for me, it comes down to two really key important things. One is the representation of multiple like cultures and diversities in these professional fields. We need more black and brown and Asian and, and Native American and, you know, all of these different people. We need them in these health professions as doctors, as nurses, as as clinical researchers, as public health professionals, as health educators. We need them in these spaces because they will be the mouthpiece kind of disseminating health information we get from the CDC and the NIH into their local communities, and we will be more trusted. Communities are much more likely to trust their own kind than this kind of uh, new person coming in. I mean, we need to step, we need to start stepping away from this, like, white savior complex that yes. only a white male doctor can come in and save all of these black and brown folks. That's not true. We need to educate and empower the up and coming generations of black and brown and others, uh, other minorities to get educated, get the resources, and then go back to the community they came from and really help rebuild those communities. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second part of it is we need to, you know, we need to believe that, like, this virus is real, that, you know, Dr. Fauci and others are not, like, doing this for some type of political gain. We need to believe that masks really do help serve the spread. Yeah, so there's, um, I, I, I would guess, you know, that I would say that those are my two kind of first steps of decolonizing is let's empower our own kind to um, have the resources, the knowledge, the opportunities to be these healthcare leaders. Um, and also let's kind of regain the trust behind science that um, could really save so many lives, that has already saved so many lives, right? Like the, the only reason why we're getting to live to 80, 90, 100 years old now is because of public health advancements, all of which are grounded in science. Yes. I mean, honestly, one of the things about this decolonial consciousness that's so important for me is that I've been trained 
we've all been trained in this very Eurocentric, very head-centric way of, of seeing the world. And science is heady for sure. Like, I didn't do well in all my science classes. But also science is embodied. Science is like how everything is constantly interacting and communicating with one another. Like, that's, it's, you know, it's right in front of us. Like, that's the thing that's so powerful about it. But yeah. um, this colonial concept of it, of this kind of, documenting testing like all those things that are part of science have like kind of co-opted the entirety of it in a way that I think makes it really hard for us to understand how relevant it is and like yeah yeah it's the same issue with climate change right like people don't see that like their everyday breath their everyday decisions like all these things are a part of this larger organism right and this like connectivity that we have to each other and to the earth (laughs) yeah I guess I want to I want to say something on that comment that you made me think of um, this idea of like you know it's it, the fear of or the inability to believe in science because it's something that one cannot understand mm. um, and listen like I said I could I I know some very basic biology and microbiome and you know genetics and all those things so I had to take it in my undergrad and my graduate classes but. I cannot explain to you the like exact mechanism of how a vaccine works. I can't explain to you the exact mechanism of how the SARS COVID two virus gets in your body and causes, you know, uh, for you to go like I can't explain that. But what I can explain is health education and, and these public health theories and, and all these other, you know, things that I'm personally passionate and yeah. educated on. And so I yeah. think it comes back to this idea that like just from our very, very beginning, human human the human race is very dependent on community. I don't have to understand exactly how every little little mechanism of the world works. I just need to know how my role, how, yeah. how my my knowledge, and how to put that into the world. And then I need to trust the doctors to know what they're doing. I need to trust the engineers to know what they're doing. I need to trust the microbiologists working in labs to know what they're doing. Right. And I think a lot of the 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 fear and the anti-masking and all these rhetoric that we're hearing now stems from a lack of understanding and a, and a, a perspective of fear of thinking that these people are trying to kill them. When in reality, I would be willing to bet that most, if not like, I mean, I think it'd be easier to find an exception to the rule of we really just want to help you. We really just want to save lives. We really just want to like improve people's health. We really want to prevent people from dying these horrible painful expensive deaths <laughs> we haven't even talked about health health care universal health care and things like right. that but yeah oh man it's so i mean that's so true right is this and it's this um it's this new trust is such a nuanced thing right because you know like i don't understand how the internet works like i've learned i don't understand how a camera works someone's told me it just <laughs> i don't understand it but i use it every day and i and I benefit from it, and I know that others benefit from it. And in the same way, I think these, yeah, science can feel like something that's scary. But when, you know, when in the right hands, and that's kind of that vision you talked about of decolonizing with representation and, um, you know, a diversity in the professional field, we can trust it more because it's not just, you know, we don't have to fear that it's going to be used against us the more that we move towards kind of this communal mindset which is just hard especially in capitalism <laughs> right where mm-hmm. we're like you're trying to get my money you're trying to take advantage of me we don't have um yeah we don't have the building blocks for trust which is right. really hard right and i think in the end you know it, 
we we can't ignore the fact that we have I think we just surpassed the 150,000 uh, Americans that had died from from this illness from this virus. Like we can't ignore the fact that whatever it is that we're doing isn't working, right? Let's just start at that baseline of like these the way that we're handling the pandemic, the way that we're trying to quote unquote reopen the economy, all these things are not working. People are still dying at crazy high rates. Um, so let's, you know, if we claim to be these like world leaders, like why are we so stuck in our ways? Like let's be innovative. Let's, let's pivot. Let's try something else. Like, what are we so afraid of? What are we so afraid of? And also like, why do we care so little? Like why oh. does it not like break our hearts that 150,000 families are mourning the deaths of their loved ones? Oh. Like how does that not tear you apart? Fear and apathy, man. You just named some really yeah. central things to our our nation's response. Mm-hmm. And it's not neutral. It is deadly. Wow. Yeah. I actually have a blog uh, where I kind of explore different uh, intersections of public health and religion. Um, I'm hoping to really like pour into it this coming year at the Divinity School. Um, but I have, I think, one or two posts up regarding um, suicide and mental health. So just trigger warning if you're, you know, kind of sensitive to that. Um, but we start talking a little bit about that. So you can check that out at healingtheology.com. That's my blog. And then if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, my I'm at A-L-E, Ali or Ali. Uh, Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I, 15, the one five, and that's for both handles. So check me out there. Yay! We will post that in all the show notes and on social media. And this is, oh man, we're going to have so much fun for the next two plus years. I know. Thank you, Ale. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. All right. We'll talk later. Go get some rest. I'll talk to you later. All righty. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope you feel part of it. Um, This is really just about starting the conversation about helping us disrupt the status quo and the way that we think about the world around us, kind of peeling back that colonial curtain um, in seeing this bigger decolonial vision and starting to take practical steps uh, towards a better world and a better way of being, um, a way to see, a way to see as we pull back that curtain. So let's keep the conversation going on social media. What did you think about the idea of this being a genocide? And what can we learn from this sort of indifference that Ali talked about with um, often more white and privileged folks in Florida who don't see the intensity of what's happening to black and brown and other marginalized lives all around us? Until next time, I'm Rebecca Mendoza Nunziato. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Decolonize Podcast and Twitter at Decolonize Pod. Wear a mask, stay safe, and let's decolonize everything together.